0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter four, as we continue our series in the book of Romans. You know, I don't know how many of you have, how many of you have visited one of the Hall of Fames uh, around the country. Okay, a few of you have. Um, <clears throat> well, you know, we have a Hall of Faith in the Bible. It's Hebrews chapter eleven, and in that Hall of Faith we find Abraham, and it says. In verse 8 of Hebrews 11, it was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land, God promised him he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations a city designed and built by God. Well, if you've been here since the beginning of the year, the beginning of our study in the book of Romans, uh, you'll know that, that Paul has been making a case in the first three chapters for the depravity of man, that man is totally depraved apart from who God is, uh, apart from that perfect goal of, who, of, of looking at God. We all fall short of the glory of God. And um, that's, where he, that's where we're at. So Charles Spurgeon was uh, such a, an amazing preacher. And, and Charles Spurgeon said that a sermon is like a house, and the windows provide light in the house. And the, the windows are like the illustrations. And Paul was aware of that, and Paul chooses some illustrations to illustrate what he's talking about, Uh, in these passages that we're in the the verses that we're looking at today gives us several illustrations. Um, For a long time, even maybe this is current, uh, the truth of God's grace has been hidden by combining Greek philosophy and Jewish traditions so that uh, it's common for people to say, I've heard people say this, Uh, God helps those who help themselves. And that is not biblical, but people say it a lot, as if it comes from the Bible. Um, Every good Jew spent their lives, uh, or spends their lives trying to achieve God's righteousness by being very careful to obey and observe all of the laws and the rituals. And many thought that Christianity... Uh, was just a continuation of that same thing. So when Paul says in Romans 3, verse 28, you can look at that in your Bibles, that, that a person is justified by faith apart from the law, it sounded like this was a brand new doctrine, especially to Jewish believers. And so to demonstrate that this doctrine of justification by grace through faith was not new at all. Paul drew on some heroes of the Jewish faith to to explain this, Abraham and David, and then he uses the Gentiles. So if you will, they're like sermon illustrations. What the Jews thought was that Abraham performed the whole law before it was written. He was perfect in all of his deeds, and Abraham had no need for repentance, And their conclusion was that Abraham was justified by what he did, by his works. And so he's an example to follow. Case closed. That's who we're to follow. That's what the Jews thought. So Paul brilliantly uh, presents Abraham not as one who worked for his salvation, but one who was saved by faith alone. So let's read our passage, Romans chapter 4 beginning at verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? In fact, Abraham was justified by works. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Before? it was not after but before and he received circumcision as a sign a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised so then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness that righteousness might be credited to them and he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Verse 13 It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. Because that law, the law, brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. So that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. This is God's word. So Paul's f- first illustration in this passage, number one on your outline, is the faith of Abraham. Paul's point in these first five verses is that Abraham was justified before he did any of the great works he's, we think of him for, that he's so famous for. Paul is saying that if we're able to have a trusting relationship with, with God... We can do so even if we feel that our faith is weak. So Paul begins, and I want to reread verses 1 and uh, and following there. So what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? So, you know, we think of Abraham as a champion of our faith. And to prove this, Paul quotes Genesis 15, verse 6, and his answer is given here in in Romans 4, 3. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that's just a quote from Genesis 15. So Paul's entire argument, really, and this is an important verse in Genesis, centers around that verse, and then one from Psalm 32, when he gives David as an illustration in in a few verses. So having established the the faith alone principle from Genesis 15, Paul gives that principle in in what were very shocking terms to the traditional Jew. So here's verses 4 and 5, the next verses, but in a paraphrase. So follow along in your Bible. If you're a hard worker and do a good job, you deserve your pay. We don't call your wages a gift. But if you see that the job is too big for you, that it's something only God can do, and you trust him to do it, you could never do it for yourself, no matter how hard and how long you worked. Well, that trusting him to do it is what gets you set right with God, by God. It's a sheer gift. So what's interesting here is that when you look at the account of Abraham, uh, Abraham's faith is not very impressive. And this is what Paul wants us to see, that that God uses weak people who have weak faith. Uh, So I want to go back to Genesis for a little bit and see that in the life of Abraham. So it's in Genesis 12 where God speaks to Abraham and tells him to leave his home and to go to a place where he will have a son. And it's here that God first calls Abram, Abraham which means father of many people. And God tells Abraham that he will be the, he will be the father of a great nation. Uh, God promises to bless the entire human race through Abraham. Uh, the very next thing we see in Abraham's life in Genesis 12 is that Abraham and Sarah travel to Egypt. And Abraham says to Sarah, you know, you're, you're beautiful. And I know those Egyptian men, and they're going to be after you. And so uh, what they're going to do is kill me to have you. And so let's just lie and tell them that you are my sister. And if one of them wants you, they can have you, but I'll live. That's Abraham. So this is what happens. They do lie to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh takes Sarah to join his royal harem. And Pharaoh gives Abraham all these animals and all these slaves and, and other things in exchange for Sarah, and he takes them. And Pharaoh later finds out that Sarah is Abraham's wife, and Abraham, Abraham's God is very unhappy with Pharaoh that all this happened. And Pharaoh goes to Abraham and says, why did you lie to me? And the point is that Pharaoh... Who practices paganism has a higher priority for doing what is right than Abraham, who is supposed to be a man of God. And after all this, incredibly, Abraham doesn't learn his lesson and he does it again in Genesis 20. And then, after waiting for 11 years for the, from the time God promised for a child, Sarah. No child has come. Sarah convinces Abraham to have a child with her servant girl, Hagar. And you would think that this man of faith would say, Sarah, take a deep breath. We have to trust God. He does not do that. Instead, Abraham agrees to follow Sarah's suggestion and have a child through her servant, Hagar, and it's a disaster. And 13 years later, God tells Abraham that Sarah is going to have a child. Does Abraham believe God? Well, it says in Genesis 17, 17, that Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Let me ask Rick Bousbach. He may be the senior member here today. He's in his 90s. How would you feel if God came to you and said you and Jan are going to bear a child? Well, uh, Sarah hears this, and it says in Genesis 18, basically, that she laughs and says, an old woman like me get pregnant with an old man like Abraham? Right. And then Genesis 18, it says this, then the Lord said to Abraham, 'Why, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? Is anything too hard for God? I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And then it says, verse 15, Sarah was afraid, so she denied it and said, I didn't laugh. As if you can hide that from God. (laughs) Abraham's faith is so weak that he denies that Sarah is his wife two times. He fathers a child with Hagar, who is not his wife. And he laughs at God when God says that he and Sarah are going to have a child. But Paul says that Abraham did not waver in his faith. And he believed God and trusted God's power. So what is Paul saying? Paul, is a, is, who's a rabbi, who knows the story of Abraham like the back of his hand. Well, let's go back and look at this from Abraham's perspective. When Abraham says yes to God to go to a new land that will be his... The account of Moses at Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the account of David, and the Psalms were all in the future. So Abraham has really no information about who God is until God comes and speaks with him. And so Abraham comes from an ancient culture, that was brutal and was very superstitious. And in Joshua 24, Joshua describes Abraham like this. Uh, He says, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And then it says this, And they served other gods. So that's where Abraham is coming from. Like everyone is day, Abraham was raised as a pagan in a pagan world. And so when God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, this is the very first time, that's the first evidence, anyway, that we have that there is a personal and living and good and all-powerful God interacting with Abraham. And so it's out of this context that Abraham shows great faith in Genesis 12:4. It says, So Abraham went as the Lord told him. He, he obeyed the Lord. He went to another land. So here's Paul's point. Abraham isn't portrayed as a spiritual giant. He's superstitious. He's an average, we could even say cowardly man, maybe like a lot of us. And so why does Paul hold him up as such a great example of faith? Well, in the birth of Isaac, Abraham knew that only what only God could do, that only God could do that, that he could do nothing. Abraham knew he was an old man with an old wife. And so on your outline, you have this this isn't about Abraham's faith, this is about God's faithfulness. This is about how great God is. God's faithful to his promises. So the hero of the story and what Paul is saying is not Abraham, it's God. It's better to have a little faith in a big God than big faith in a little God. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 17. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if you have faith even as small as as a mustard seed. You could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. So why does Jesus say this? And again, this is on your outline because it's not about how big your faith is, but how big your God is. That's what's important. So who is this God? He is a God who creates from nothing. He is a God who raises the dead He is the God that that, uh, takes a couple that should be using walkers and they're pushing a baby carriage. And their baby ultimately points us to Jesus. As Isaac is is sacrificed by Abraham and Abraham takes him up and, and that points us to Jesus. And so salvation for us is by faith alone like it was for Abraham. Or it's not salvation at all. What Paul is saying is that faith is not just another form of payment to God. It's not just another virtue, like like honesty or kindness or humility. That's not what faith is. Faith is believing in God. It's believing that God is good. It's, 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 It's not a good deed that makes us worthy of grace. That's why it doesn't take a lot of faith. It just takes the faith of a mustard seed. So that's the first illustration that Paul gives us about faith is through Abraham. And he'll come back to that later. But the second illustration he gives us, starting in verse six, is with David. And having shown now that Abraham was considered righteous by faith, Paul now gives us the example of another Old Testament faith, that of King David. And he quotes Psalm 32. And David's joyous relief after having his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah forgiven. It was an undeserved righteousness. So, verse 6 of Romans 4, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one uh, to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then he says blessed twice and in the next two verses. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. That's us. Blessed are those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin, the Lord will never count against them. And that the key word in both of those verses with Abraham and, and with David is the word credits. He credits them. And, and it was a rabbinical principle of interpretation that if the same word is used in two verses, you can take those two verses and use them to interpret each other. And so what's more important here, what's most important, is that David also has unearned righteousness credited to his account by faith. So in this one sin against Bathsheba, David broke three commandments. He coveted Bathsheba, he committed adultery with her, and then he murdered her husband. And there was no Old Testament sacrifice for premeditated sin like this. And so what does David do? He pleads with the Lord in Psalm 51. You've got the the verse on on your outline. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so David's case seemed to be completely hopeless. There was nothing he could do. There was no sacrifice he could make. All he could do was cast himself on the mercy of God. And that's what he does. F.F. Bruce, when he comments on, on this situation with David, said, says this, it's on your outline. If we examine the remainder of Psalm 32 to discover the ground on which David was acquitted, it appears that he simply acknowledged his guilt and cast himself in faith upon the mercy of God. That's why he's held up here as a man of faith, as an example of faith. Paul calls him blessed in in verse six, and, and David calls himself blessed twice in verses seven and eight. Why? Because there was no work that could possibly be done to atone for his sin. There was nothing David could do. And so David is forgiven by faith alone. And and so here again, the principle of faith alone is established and illustrated by Paul in the life of of one of uh, of the greatest king of Israel, David, who the scripture says was a man after God's own heart. Nothing we can ever do can atone for our sins. And that's what Paul wants us to see here. Our only hope is what we looked at last week, and if you want to look back at verses 21 and 22 in chapter 3, the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And so how do we know the joy of salvation and the forgiveness of God, like David did in Psalm 51? Uh, We quit denying our guilt. We have to admit our sin. We have this principle in 1 John that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we have to admit our guilt. We have to ask forgiveness. Uh, Jesus died so that we don't have to go around feeling guilty. He he died so that we could have a, a freedom in him. You know, uh, one of the first jobs that my mother had after she graduated from nursing school was to work in uh, psychiatric nursing in uh, a place called the Menninger Foundation in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, If you know the name Carl Menninger, he was maybe the foremost authority at the time on psychiatry. Um, Many of you will know the name Groucho Marx. His daughter was one of the patients my mom cared for. Uh, They, they, famous people would take their, their, their children, their family members to the Menninger Foundation. Carl Menninger was not a Christian. He was Jewish. And he wrote a book, though, called Whatever Became of Sin. And his thesis in this book is basically that if I could just get my patients to admit that they're sinners... Just confess their sin, admit that they're, they're, they're throw their guilt on, on other people instead of go around and, going around and, and carrying it themselves. He said, I could empty my psychiatric clinic. This was a Jewish guy. He wasn't a Christian. But he says, we have to admit our guilt before God. And then ask for, I mean, I don't know where, where he goes after that, but we need to ask forgiveness. And we, we need to let go of our guilt by believing that God has forgiven us. Because he has forgiven us in Christ. And this this can be hard to do because sin's roots are deep in our lives. And when it involves others, it it gets messy. And we need to go and, and confess our sin before them and ask them to forgive us. But we have to remember, too, that in view of the price that Jesus paid on the cross, it's arrogant for us to think there's any sin that's too great for God to forgive If you think the sin you have is too great for God to forgive, it is not. You just need to trust him. This is where faith comes in to forgive you. And then David uses a third illustration, and that's the Gentiles starting in verse 9. Up to this point, Paul has been talking about Jews, and some could think that salvation by faith alone was only for the Jews. And so Paul asks the question that we have in verse 9. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul answers this in favor of the Gentiles starting in verse 10. And what Paul points out in verses 10 to 12 is that Abraham was credited as righteous at least 14 years before he was circumcised. You've got the timeline in front of you. Uh, In Genesis 15, Abraham's promised an heir. Genesis 16, Abraham is 86 years old when Hagar bore him a son with Ishmael, uh, son Ishmael. And then in Genesis 17, Ishmael is 13 when his 99-year-old father and all the men in the family are circumcised. So there are at least 14 years between when Abraham believed and when he was circumcised. And the point is that Abraham was declared to be righteous while he was technically still a Gentile. He had not yet been circumcised. But So before he became a Jew, by faith alone applied to him. And so really he, it counted for him both as a Gentile than later when he circumcised as a Jew. So Jews and Gentiles have the possibility, Paul says, of being brothers and sisters in Christ. And what happened is that through the centuries after Abraham, the Jewish people placed a greater and greater emphasis on the outward symbol of circumcision, basically forgetting about their internal relationship with God. And so today that would be like getting baptized or having communion without having a personal relationship with Christ or knowledge of Jesus. These ordinances, communion and baptism, are meaningless apart from a genuine relationship with God through Christ. And Paul calls circumcision a seal. And, well, you know, we think of maybe what a seal is, but here's the definition in the theological dictionary of the New Testament. The seal is placed on property and wills, it's on your outline, as a legal protection and guarantee. Seals serve as proof of identity to protect many different things, like houses or graves or whatever, against violation. In Roman law, there were six witnesses to seal a will. Think about the hassle that would be today. And all six had to break their own seal to open the will. And the seal also played an important part in government as all authorities had their own seals. Holding a seal carried with it an element of power. You know, think of the seals that we have today. Maybe a notary would be the thing that would... Be the most common. Uh, it's something that would distinguish a, 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 a genuine document from one that was not a real document, and uh, or a, a, a diploma usually has a seal on it to determine that this is really this person really did graduate from this university or or whatever. But baptism <clears throat> follows the decision that we have to trust Christ for, for salvation. It's a public declaration, if you will, of one who has turn from their sin, and, and, and are, they're covered in the righteousness of, of Christ, if you will, and then they have a lifelong quest for a deeper relationship with God. And that's a, a type of seal, the baptism is a type of seal. Communion, in that sense, is a type of seal. You cannot be saved through baptism, uh, nor must one be baptized in order to be saved. Again, it's like the lord's notary seal. Baptism is on the life of a new believer. It's the Christian's conduct that would make his or her relationship with Jesus evident to the people around them. So because Abraham believed that God and, and believed in God and his righteousness years before he was circumcised, Paul rightly calls him the father of all who believe, both circumcised and uncircumcised. So Abraham is rightly called the patriarch over all the family of genuine believers. He, in that sense, is our father, one of our fathers in the faith. And that leads us to number four on the outline, that faith goes beyond the law. So Paul comes full circle from his argument and repeats his points in verses four and five, uh, in verses 13 to 15. So We cannot be declared righteous through our obedience to God's law, is what he's saying. And this is on your outline. If we could be considered righteous through perfect obedience, there would be no need for God's grace. No need. And that's maybe the key point for this sermon today. You can put a star by this, because if you remember nothing else, this is it. If we could be considered righteous through perfect obedience, there would be no need for God's grace. And there is a need for God's grace because we can't do it on our own. Even if we could obey perfectly from this point on in our lives, it would never be enough to cover our past sin. Our only hope is receiving the righteousness of God as a gift by believing in God's promises. Righteousness is really a five-letter word that's spelled faith. Faith. And if circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham's justification, the the law had even less to do with it. So Paul explains in verse 13, look at verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. To pursue righteousness both by the law and by faith is impossible. You can't do both and. Look at verse 14. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. That's what we get with the law. We get wrath. And where there is no law, there's no transgression. So again, Paul says in Galatians, the law is like our tutor to lead us to Christ. If we have to keep the law to receive the promise, then the promise will never be fulfilled because we know we cannot keep the law. Jesus kept it for us. No one can keep the law, and so the law just makes our failure all the more obvious. So what Paul says is this, don't be fooled. The principle of faith transcends the law. Abraham was credited as righteous because of his faith, and so was David. Those are the examples. Salvation is by faith alone, and it came before the Jews, before the law. It's for everyone. And then the final thing, his conclusion in, in, in verse 16 is the promise comes by faith alone. And Paul draws this amazing and beautiful conclusion in verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all whether Jew or Gentile. So Abraham is the champion of our faith in that sense. And Paul tells us that we're able to have a trusting relationship with God, even though we feel our faith is weak. There are all times we feel our faith is weak. And so like Abraham, this is on your outline, we are saved by faith plus nothing. It's just faith. By grace through faith that we're saved. And I don't think most people know what they need, but I think one thing that everyone needs is a clear understanding of what Paul is teaching in Romans chapters one through four, especially, really, the whole book of Romans. But we need to understand how radically sinful we are and how sin impacts every area of our lives and that we are completely unable on our own to live up to God's standards. We can't do it on our own. We are lost. We need to understand that we all need this radical righteousness that God gives us in Christ that comes from God alone. Like we saw last week in, in, in Romans 3, verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Paul said it like this to the Philippians. In Philippians 3, you've got the re- reference on your outline and the, the verse on your outline. Be founding, Being found, and we must be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is by faith. And if we have this, then we can say what Paul wrote to Titus in Titus chapter three. He saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. So I, I want to end with a few ways that we should be that that faith should be at work in our lives. So the the first thing is the primacy of God's word. We should should have faith in the primacy of God's word. Paul spends three chapters in Romans talking about man's great need and God's perfect remedy in Christ. And then in chapter four, Paul basically brings everything down to two verses. Genesis 15, verse six, and Psalm 32, a couple of verses in Psalm 32, one and two, uh, to establish the faith of Abraham and the faith of, of David. What settles the question? It's God's word. When God's word speaks, that should settle the matter, the matter for us. The second place where our faith should be at work is the hopelessness of trying to be saved by good works. We should have faith that our good works do not save us. <clears throat> the Jews believed that Abraham was a great man. We saw Otherwise, that he was just pretty average and his faith was really weak. <clears throat> but the object of his faith was amazing. And so Abraham was not saved by his godliness, by the good things he did. And we shouldn't think that we can be saved by the good things we do. The third thing that our where our faith should be active and at work is confidence in the gospel. The, the Lord Jesus affirms. Abraham's salvation, when he speaks in Luke 16 and compares heaven, uh, says that it's synonymous with Abraham's bosom. Abraham was saved by the same gospel that is preached today, righteousness by faith. That God made Jesus, who was perfect, who, who, who knew no sin, to become sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. And Abraham believed it and we believe it and that's what we need to have faith in. And then finally, that all this points to the authenticity and the soundness of Christianity. The authenticity and the soundness of Christianity. And I I think this could be summed up by a quote that's on your outline by Donald Gray Barnhouse who says, all other religions are the gropings of man after God. The faith that is in Christ is God's revelation of truth from himself. In the terms and in the manner he wished us to have the truth. And so the focus of our faith has to be on Jesus. After the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11, what does it say? Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So it's not a question of having enough faith. It's the question of having a little faith in a great God. who who, It's not that... Think of what we've looked at today as God's don't-do-it-yourself kit. And on the outside of that, kit is labeled grace, because that's what our faith is in, the grace of God. A man named Horatius Bonar was from Scotland and had a passion for revival. And he said, you want to see revival? Here's what God does in our hearts when we have revival. Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine. And with unfaltering lip and heart, I call this Savior mine. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've put the wrong that we did on Jesus, who never did any wrong, so that we could be made right with God. We thank you for the example of Abraham and David. It causes us, Lord, just to worship you more because of the grace that we know in our lives through faith. It makes us love you all the more. Like Abraham, Lord, we want to follow in, in his footsteps, in the footsteps of David and trust you by faith. Even when it, we don't understand it, even when it, it's not fully comprehensible to us because we believe and trust in you and your word. Father, help us to step out in faith, to follow you where, wherever you want us to go. And if there's anyone here, Father, who doesn't know you personally, I pray that your Holy Spirit might bring to their understanding that Jesus came to die for their sins so that we might become the righteousness of God. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray.